Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 50. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $269 each, and everybody's favorite coin for content creation, the LTB coin, is trading at $0.000185 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty dog, Maxwell, by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I am fortunate to have back at the studio one of my favorite authors, Max Hernandez. Max talks to us today about his novel, Thieves' Emporium, a compelling journey into a dystopian future where the innocent and the not-so-innocent live, work, and play on the dark side of the Internet. Throughout this interview, Max shares with us his vision of the past, the present, and the future. Today on the show, I am honored to be speaking with a gentleman who is a fantastic writer. I am speaking today with Max Hernandez, the author of Thieves' Emporium, a must-read book for anyone who loves great fiction and who is into technology. Max, welcome back to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great to have you back. How are things going for you? Uh, Going well. Going well. Uh, Things are excellent. All right. And your book sales have been going well so far? Yes, yes. They picked up quite a bit after the interview. Oh, good. Uh, a lot of people uh, apparently uh, started reading the book thanks to uh, your comments on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, hey, no problem. You know, it's a great book, and I've talked to a ton of people about it. I've passed my copy to a friend who read it, loved it, passed it back. Now my copy is lost in my house somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> which is distressing, but I know I can somehow get another one. I can try to bribe you for another one. No, it'll, it'll show up. I just have to be a little bit more diligent in searching my bookshelves. Yes, yeah, so I had not finished the book the last time we talked. And since then, of course, since that's been months, I finished the book. I love the book. I love the ending. Of course, I'm not, you know, we cannot talk about the ending, like what happens at the end of the book, right? We, we just can't talk about that because then, you know, it's going to ruin it for people who want to read the book. That's true. Yeah. If you were going to just tell people in a nutshell, okay, Thieves Emporium, what is this book about? Why did you write it? And how do you think it's relevant to what's going on in the world right now? Those are some huge questions I just asked. So we're Wherever you want to begin with that, you have at it, man. I guess it's an overview of the kind of conditions and the kind of environment that Bitcoins have to operate in now. You know, when we talk about uh, Bitcoins coming along as a new form of money, we're talking about a, a kind of an environment that already exists. And uh, this is an investigation of all those aspects of the environment. It talks about issues of surveillance. It talks about uh, issues of money and what it means. It talks about the Fed and how the money that they issue is, is used to control us and to run our society. It talks about uh, hierarchical structures uh, such as the government and the growth of distributed power structures that we see more and more uh, with the Internet coming of age. We're only beginning to start to see it happen. Uh, I'm thinking of publishing conversations, publishing... um, Ideas. Publishing ideas, exactly. The nature of 
politics changed drastically when the printing press came along. Mm -hmm. uh, until then, if you wanted to engage in mass communications, it was kind of difficult. Uh, you know, you could talk to your friends and your buddies and pass the words around the neighborhood and uh, gossip spread, but that was, that was it. If you wanted to write something down, you really were limited with the ability to, in essence, talk with just one or two or three people who read whatever you wrote because you wrote it by hand. Mm -hmm. And then the printing press came. Yeah, Gutenberg. Gutenberg, and suddenly it enabled a single authority who controlled that printing press to distribute ideas throughout an organization. And so that allowed the nation state to come into existence. That's really what produced the kind of centralized power that we call the nation state. Yeah. And most communications since then have really just been uh, continuations of that. You know, the telephone, the telegraph, uh, television, radio, those are all central broadcasting facilities sorts of of structures. Mm -hmm. um, the internet, for the first time, has allowed us to suddenly have total decentralized communications. And I think a lot of the struggle that you see in the world right now is caused by this conflict between hierarchical centralized power structures and distributed power structures in which individuals establish their position in society by talking peer-to-peer -peer, yep. as opposed to up and down in a hierarchy. Absolutely. And the scary thing, of course, is that those people at the top of the hierarchical structure, they're going to do anything they can, and they're trying to stop these decentralized communication networks, i.e. the Internet, <laughs> to throw a wrench in the Internet that we have that we all consider free at this point, right? They're right. working to co-opt that, and if the day comes when they, the powers that be, have as much control over the Internet as they have over the mass media, television and radio, then we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then we'll have to go to something else. But then that really comes right back to why you wrote this book and the Thieves Emporium, right? It is. The name of the book, Thieves Emporium, comes about from a position that I have regarding where I think the Internet is going. I believe we are going inevitably to wind up with some ability to engage in completely uh, anonymous communication. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, if I want to talk with you, it's very hard without somebody knowing who you are and who I am. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we are fast going to get to the point where that will become very easy to do or relatively easy to do. And what that means is that you can now have or will be able to have a completely anonymous marketplace in which uh, you have double-blind communications taking place, transactions that are double-blind, in which even if you wanted to tell the authorities who it was that you were dealing with, you couldn't because you have no way of finding out. And if that situation ever arises, you're going to have a major change in the political structure of society. And as you say, it's probably not going to be a benign change. It's probably going to be rather violent and unpleasant in many, many ways. Uh, that's what the book is about. The book is about a marketplace composed of completely anonymous transactions. And the conflict between the kind of society that would grow up with that sort of communications freedom and the hierarchy sorts of communications of political power structures that we have at present through governments and, and other such organizations, corporations. Uh, uh, it doesn't mention corporations specifically, but they're certainly part of it. And money enters into this. You know, we have uh, right now a hierarchical monetary system. Mm 
Mm -hmm. We did not have that until basically the 1900s. The turn of the century, when the Fed came into existence, that was a centralization of our money supply. Until then, money was based on gold. It was produced in a distributed fashion from mines all over the world, and it was consumed in distributed banking systems, and commerce was all distributed with, in essence, no control of any sort. And the Fed was a move to centralize that monetary system. Uh, mm -hmm. With it came a tremendous amount of power in the hands of central authorities. And we can talk, I guess, uh, about the sorts of problems that I believe that's causing our society. But the important point to me is I didn't want to go into bitcoins. All of the technology involved is uh, rather sophisticated. So I substituted the idea of a digital representation of gold mm -hmm. for a form of money that would function over the Internet uh, and yet be kind of intuitively obvious to everybody who thought about it because the objective is to talk about the implications of centralized money versus distributed money mm -hmm. and centralized communications versus distributed communications and surveillance right versus anonymity right bitcoin is sort of is a bomb that's dumped into the heart of all of these issues uh, but unfortunately, it's a very technical subject. And so I was trying to outline and describe the aspects of the surrounding ecosystem that Bitcoin must deal with without dragging in the issues of the technology of Bitcoin. I didn't miss the fact that there is no talk about Bitcoin in the book, that Bitcoin does not play a part in the book because the tech that you brought in and talking about someone's wheels in the book, you use the term wheels, which refers to a computer that somebody has that allows them to get on the Thieves Emporium, right? The dark net, let's say. Sure, sure, and it allows sure. them to transact and to communicate with people completely 100% anonymously, but you have to know how to set up your wheels. You can't just get any computer from Kmart or whatever, Walmart, and plug it in and expect to be anonymous. There are certain specific things that you have to do. And that, laying that out for a lot of people, I think will help a lot of people these days understand what they have to do, that there are certain tech hurdles they have to overcome. You can't just log into Tor and think that nobody's watching you and nobody's listening to you. That's just not the truth. We know that now, right? Yeah, you can't just yeah, be on the right. onion and you're completely anonymous just because you want to be, right? So the reality that you brought to the situation for what we're going to see in the future is right there in the book. The one thing I would say is that the Thieves Emporium, where you can go and you can buy and sell anonymously and set up all kinds of different things to happen, you know, it makes sense to me that there was not a lot of shopping for things that you would find on Etsy, for instance, uh, or shopping for things that you would have on eBay. It makes sense that you didn't really dive into talking about buying an antique set of earrings <laughs> on Etsy or uh, ordering a sweater or something for a friend or a book on Amazon. It makes sense that you didn't get into talking about the details of shopping because that's not really that important. Although I will say, don't you think it's important for in the future for a decentralized exchange for people who just want to buy a book from Amazon, buy a gift for a friend on eBay? Don't you think that's important for people to just be able to do basic shopping as well, right? I think it depends very much on what you consider to be normal activity. The issue of whether you want to do your normal everyday shopping in a completely anonymous fashion is really a function of the behavior of the government and other people that could be collecting data on you. If the government's objective 
or the corporation's objective, depending on how you look at it, is to control your behavior. One of the ways that the government goes about doing this, and I talk about this in the book, is by building these huge databases on you. I mean, that's, that's what's going on out there in Utah. That data center is there basically just to hoover up every bit of information they can. Mm-hmm. And then if they decide that you are a person of interest for some reason, they begin mining of that database for you. Now, there's, there's probably 100,000 laws. Nobody really knows for certain probably 100,000 laws in existence uh, in the United States right now. And there's more than that in regulations. Um, So that very quickly, the government can wind up, given enough data, they can wind up finding a long list of crimes that everybody has committed. If they decide they want to get you, they can put together a string of information that proves that you were wherever they want to prove you were and doing whatever they want to prove that you were doing, and you don't have access to the ability to mine that database to prove you weren't. I was young. I was young. I needed the money. <laughs> There's an excellent book, which uh, is is one of the actually one of the books in the bibliography that Thieves Emporium has called Three Felonies a Day, and in it the author spends a, a, a fair amount. He's a lawyer. He spends a fair amount of time describing cases in which people did absolutely innocuous, innocent, nothing things, but because of of prosecutorial excesses and determination by some member of the government that the individual involved needed to be got, these innocent things were put together in a string of events that resulted in the person often going to jail, at the very least having his business destroyed. If the government didn't have that attitude, then your innocent activities could be made public and nobody would care. But if the government has that attitude, the only way you have to protect yourself is to do everything you can to keep every bit of personal data about your life out of those databases. And that means going out of your way to purchase things, to engage in discussions of the kind that you might have uh, with your friends, to go places without being monitored. You have to go out of your way not to let anybody observe your activity, not because your activity is morally wrong or even legally wrong, but because in the future it could be construed as a weapon against you. Let me ask you today, right now, for somebody who wants to be surfing the Internet completely anonymously, what do you think, what would you say to your average young person out there, what would you say it's going to cost them for the hardware, and then how easy or difficult is it for them to learn how to use this hardware that they've purchased, computer and whatnot, to be completely anonymous on the Internet today? Well, unfortunately, there's no way to be completely anonymous on the Internet today. You're playing a probabilities game. You know, it's going to be very, very hard for you to guarantee that nothing that you do will be observed and watched. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to guarantee that nothing that you do is observed and watched. You don't have to be that extreme in order to protect yourself. All you have to do is cut down drastically on the amount of surveillance that takes place. And so to address your specific question about the computer, I guess first I might point out that there are a number of of these issues that are addressed in parts of the appendix of the book. Mm -hmm. And so I won't go into those particular sources, but I, I will just mention a couple of examples. I do pretty much all of my web browsing using the Tor browser. 
The only time I use a non-Tor browser is, is if Tor is too slow or there is some other reason why it does not function effectively. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing you can do. The second thing you could do is you can get yourself a VPN service. Okay. Uh, the subject of VPNs, again, is discussed in the book. Uh, set it up so that it goes outside the country. That makes it more difficult for people to track what is going back and forth. Of course, the VPN could itself be logging everything that's going on, so there's no guarantee with that, but, but it's one more step that you have taken to try and make it difficult for people to get information on you. Right. Tell our listeners what VPN stands for. Okay, it's a virtual private network. Uh, but nobody uses the complete term virtual private network. It's just called VPN. And basically what it is is a way of making the Internet think that you are actually located in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Uh, all your communications winds up coming out of a server in, in let's say, Romania, as opposed to uh, one there, right there in your house. And that's a relatively cheap and easy task. One of the other things that you can do is you can use Tails. I don't know whether you have ever heard of the um, USB bootable drive that is produced by Tails, but it's free. Mm-hmm. Uh, T-A-I-L-S. I recommend anybody that's interested in trying to uh, uh, secure an anonymous communication, uh, take a look at that and look at running your computer on it. Again, there is no guarantee that uh, you are going to be completely anonymous. But it cuts down drastically on the amount of monitoring that can go on to your everyday activities and what you discuss. The difficulty, the trade-off is that it's like one of the characters said in the book, the road to hell is not paved with good intentions, only small inconveniences. Hmm. Anytime you implement a security measure to try and keep your data confidential, mm-hmm. you're going to have to go to some additional trouble. And that's inconvenience. And there's a point at which these inconveniences pile up enough that you say, I, I can't do this. Right. You know, probably the most graphic example of this that I can think of is your cell phone. You know, cell phones almost all have GPS transmitters in them right now. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the phone company, and if they want to, the NSA, knows to within 10 feet where that telephone is. Oh, yeah. So if you walk out the door and go about your normal business all day long with a cell phone in your pocket and the government is hoovering all that information and dumping it into their giant database, it means now they know in that giant database every place you went. Oh, yeah. I always love it on a movie where, you know, the good guy, he gets away and he drives a car somewhere and he parks the car and somehow he runs and he is able to jump on a moving train. He he gets on the moving train and he falls asleep and he wakes up the next day and he's trying to figure out what to do next. And then there's a helicopter above the train. He's like, how the hell did they find me? Oh, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Because you've got your cell phone on you, you jackass. (laughs) You should have chucked that out the train window back in Kansas City. (laughs) You know, we all tolerate that kind of intrusion into our lives because cell phones are so tremendously convenient oh yeah but that's the trade-off how important is secrecy to you how important is privacy and for people that aren't doing anything blatantly illegal like you know you're not going out there for drugs you're just trying to live your life and you've got nothing to hide um, your objective should be to keep as much of your normal activity out of databases as you possibly can but don't destroy your life to do it 
But I think your average person, really, they don't care about it. The common thing they say is, look, if you're not doing anything wrong, why should you even worry about it? That's the common thing that people will say. And so that your average person, they don't care that all this NSA talk and all this information that we're getting, that these new computers, every new computer that's built has a backdoor, a way for information to be sent from your computer to some other server somewhere. They don't care about that because they're mostly concerned with uh, packing their school lunches for their kids and, you know, getting the bills paid. I believe you're right. And that's part of the reason that I wrote the book. The book is an attempt to show the average person who sits there and he thinks, I have nothing to hide, so why should I care? That he does have something to hide. Because what you've done is you've completely slewed the concentration of information in our society if you say, I don't care. Because I guarantee you, right now, if you don't worry about it, the government can tell where you're going every day, can track what you're doing, what you're saying, what your position is on everything. What you've done is you've just given the party in power tremendous, tremendous ability to suppress the competition because they have a complete dossier on everything being done with a competition. But the competition has no way of getting the same sort of information on those in power. Mm. And you are, whether you know it or not, you're the competition. One thing that gives me hope is, of course, and a lot of people, is that, let's say, five years from now, I think it's very possible, even less, I think it's very possible for us to be, your average person, to be able to go on the internet and be completely anonymous and to know for a fact that they are completely anonymous because they're using a decentralized service platform that has open source software that everybody in the tech community all the hackers worldwide say yeah this is clean this is good it's completely anonymous you don't have to worry you're completely uh your your ip address is completely shuffled up and mixed up and there's absolutely no way that any high-tech agency in the world can track what you're doing on the internet. I think that's coming, and I think it's going to be like anything. You know, it used to be difficult to make a video. You know, when I grew up, my dad had the Super 8 film camera, right? There was no sound to it, right? And it would cost, you know, X number of dollars to buy it, and it was only a three-minute roll, and then you'd have to go get it developed. And, you know, now, look, you can have a cell phone, and you can do an hour-long video and throw it onto YouTube in 10 minutes. So, you know, the price has just plummeted as far as this tech. And I think the same thing with being able to be completely anonymous surfing the Internet. I think that's coming, don't you? I hope you're right. But I have to say that the outcome is very much in doubt. Why? Um, because the other half of the coin is that the hierarchical organizations right now have the ability, as you point out, to plant uh, backdoors in virtually all the hardware that's coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, they have uh, tremendous capabilities in terms of surveillance. You're dealing with an organization as hierarchical organizations are, that's very well structured. Mm -hmm. And and you're trying to deal with them through what is a growing group of decentralized activists that are trying to coordinate together. The nature of that decentralized coordination is that there's a lot of communication that is easy to monitor. They don't have that same restriction. The only way that we can monitor their communications is by breaking into their system and hacking in, so to speak, hmm. and bugging it, which is much more difficult. Now, will they win at this? Because they certainly can. The only way they can do it is by pretty much freezing the Internet in terms of its technology, 
and in terms of its functions and in terms of its design, and then launching massive internet-wide security audits of everything mm -hmm. repeatedly until they managed to stamp out all of the bugs, all of the uh, loopholes that exist in so much security holes that exist in so much of our code. And once they do that, they could easily wind up locking the entire system down. I still think there are certain things that they can't stop. For instance, they can't stop, they being, you know, the powers that be, they uh -huh. can't stop an algorithm from running. They can't stop Bitcoin because it's not on a central server somewhere. This isn't Napster. So when you have other such platforms that are running decentralized, that cannot be shut down, that cannot be touched, that can only be looked at, you can only look at it and wave to it as it goes by, you know, but you can't get to it. I think we're going to see a lot more freedom. And then, you know, you have the people working on the tech behind the mesh networks. You know, this is some technology, I think, that's really going to make it difficult for the NSA and other spy agencies to see exactly what we're doing. I mean, I really like to look at it and, you know, try to be as positive as I can about it because it can all get pretty depressing. But I really try to look at it like, once again, you know, if you listen to Joseph Campbell, he talks about the mythology of good versus evil. And it's always there, you know, the same mythology we had back in Greek mythology, we see in Star Wars, right? And we see also mm -hmm, now with this mm -hmm, battle mm -hmm. between the people in the tech world who are the good guys, like right? Bitcoin folks, not all of them. <laughs> the good ones, and then the people that are over in the spy agencies, the government agencies trying to control people. So it's, once again, this battle of good and evil. I like to think that the you know, the good guys, all the tech guys who are all over the world and who are not beholden to one specific government. And to date, there is not one world government yet. Hopefully there never will be. But all of these tech guys, they're free and they're communicating and they're able to do tech just as amazing as any tech in any spy agency or any government. If someone were to say, OK, let's have a contest. <laughs> we're going to have a hackathon. We're going to bring the best that the NSA and the best that the U.S. government British government and Israeli government and all these governments, we're going to bring the best that they have and we're going to have a real hackathon. We're going to put these guys against the best that the world has. We would kick their asses sideways. You know, when I say we, I only say we because I'm on the side of the good guys, right? I'm not a tech guy, but we would kick their asses sideways. We've got so much more talent than them. Now, they do have some amazing funding. I believe the weakness in the NSA comes about because of the moral issue. I tried to describe this situation some in the book with mm -hmm. one of the, the characters who is on the side of the hierarchies and the moral issues that he finds himself facing. Uh, but Snowden is an excellent example of this. You can never be sure with a hierarchy that's engaging in activities that are of questionable morality that you won't find a person in that organization who has access to all your information and all your weaknesses, and suddenly says, God, I can't agree to what these people are doing. And I'm going to become a mole as a result and tear them apart from the inside. I mean, that's basically what Snowden did. He didn't stay inside. He took his information and left. But, but there could certainly be plenty of people that do that. Uh, and in the past, that kind of conflict existed between hierarchical organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, the KGB versus the FBI being an example. Right. Now it exists between distributed power structures, as you point out, the hackers, you know, the chaos conference and things of that nature mm -hmm. who are self-organizing and the hierarchical systems. But the hierarchical systems 
have access to tremendous amount of funding, and there are always people that you can buy with uh, excellent, excellent abilities and, and put them in your organization. The only thing that you can't know for certain is whether you've bought their conscience. And you won't know that till they blow up on you and leave a gaping hole in your structure that, <laughs> that is available for everybody else. Exactly. But, you know, just as we don't know who they have, the NSA, for instance, or the CIA, the FBI, KGB, whatever, just as we don't know who they have working for them, they don't know who we have. You know, Vitalik Buterin is a good example of a really good brain for a young person. But how do we know, how does anybody know that there aren't another 10,000 Vitaliks out there working on things that make Ethereum look like nothing? We don't know that. I like to think that right now we know that there are young people who are struggling to make a living doing something in tech they're trying to create apps or apis oh, yeah. you know these are guys that were when they were five years old they were playing games on their computers and that gaming led to reading about coding and they taught themselves how to code they got with other people and there's this whole massive tech community that so vastly outnumbers anything that take all of the tech people in all of the governments of the world and we outnumber them by it's not even funny how much we outnumber them right so they're outnumbered we're outfunded but in this new world is funding what really gets you where you need to go is funding what can win well if it comes down to actual war machines and tanks yeah funding whoever has the most funds is going to have the biggest army and they're probably going to be able to win in a battle but in this kind of battle this cyberspace battle it's not funding that gets it it's intelligence and it's how many tricks do you have in your bag and how well can you play chess how good are you at guessing what they're going to do at this point everybody knows what everybody else is trying to do it's just a matter of who has the most brain power and i think we've got more brain power than they do and also we're nicer guys <laughs> it's <laughs> which could be well, bad <laughs> i guess it depends on how you define brain power because what you've said by one definition is quite valid and that is that there is an asymmetry in numbers the hierarchies can't possibly employ as many people as exist on the distributed power side of the structure. Right. And so what this means is that when you have an organization that is in the process of performing some hidden activity, and it's a public organization in that it's well-known, it's well-seen, the NSA being an example, uh, the U.S. Army being an example, mm -hmm. um, you wind up with a huge number of people who have just decided because of the publicity and the visibility that that organization needs to be a target. Mm -hmm. um, and previously, before the Internet, that really didn't matter because even though somebody, let's say, in Peking decided that uh, they wanted to make a target of the NSA or the U.S. Army in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. they really couldn't do very much. A rifle bullet doesn't travel that far. No. But an Internet communication hack does. Yeah. And so now, all of a sudden, the U.S. Army, with its million-man army, so to speak, is facing a worldwide hacker population of thousands of times that. Oh, simply yeah. because of the visibility of the U.S. Army versus the visibility of the hackers. And that sort of asymmetry is bound to tell. It's bound to begin to wear down and destroy the ability of hierarchies to function. In the long term, 
if hierarchies do not get a lock on the security of the internet and a lock on the security of the world, they'll be worn down. Eventually, you will wind up with a distributed power structures winning. The risk is, if I can give you an example from the book, oh yeah, the risk is that if you don't have that competition, if the hierarchies manage to gain a worldwide organization that locks everything down, they will be able to rid the internet of the kind of chaos that allows hackers to exist and to attack them from afar. Mm -hmm. And the example that I specifically mentioned in the book was Imperial China. Many people don't realize that in about 1420, Imperial China sent a sailing fleet around the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. That's well documented. It's possible, and many people argue, that they actually sent that fleet completely around the world. And by fleet, I'm talking 300 ships, many of them as long as a football field. These were huge vessels that uh, had compartmentalization so that if a leak sprung in one part of the vessel, the water stopped and it didn't flood. In the West, we never saw anything like this until the mid-1800s. Hmm. Uh, in fact, we never even saw ships as large as anything they produced until the mid-1800s. Hmm. Um, in fact, really, all that Europe had around 1420 was uh, Prince Henry the Navigator's efforts. Uh, he sent out a fleet of three boats, and by boats, I mean they were 60 feet long. These are not very big. Hmm. And managed to sail them 600 miles to the islands of Madeira from Portugal. You compare the difference in those two efforts... Those two organizations, it's so lopsided, it's not even worth thinking about. I've got to throw in something there that, you know, at that time, these guys in Europe were using whale blubber in their lamps, right, as lamp oil. Sure. And even before that time, the Chinese had figured out how to bring up natural gas from the salt flats below the surface. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and bring that up in bamboo pipes and cook that's and true. heat with uh, natural gas. Anyway, continue. The point is, if you fast forward 400 years... 1820. Great Britain, which basically was just kind of a little nothing island, uh -huh. it wasn't even part of a continental power, uh, declared war on this same imperial Chinese government mm -hmm. and sent out its fleet of ships from halfway around the world and whipped the Chinese ass. The British beat the imperial Chinese government 400 years later. Yeah. What happened? Why is it that Britain went from a nothing to destroying the imperial Chinese in only 400 years? Well, the answer is simple. It's white people are crazy. Uh, no, no, <laughs> there are plenty of crazy Chinese. The reason is because the Chinese had no competition. It was an empire that basically covered all of the known world. Yeah. And so when this fleet returned to China, there was a new emperor, and he said, hey, I'm going to freeze the clock. I'm in power and I want to stay in power. And the best way to do that is to be sure that nobody develops any destabilizing technology that can knock me out of power. And so I'm going to freeze society. And that's exactly what he did. And as a result, for 400 years, nothing changed in China. The China that you saw of 1420 is the same as the China you saw in 1820. On the other hand, nobody could do that in Europe because there wasn't a single political power. Hmm. There were hundreds of little warring political states. They're all trying to kick each other's ass. They're all trying to take over each other's territories. 
And so as soon as Prince Henry managed to get a good thing going and produced trading by the Portuguese, which mm -hmm. went to the New World, and Spain saw this and jumped in. France saw this and jumped in. England saw this and jumped in. And the result is that you had a constant, admittedly bloody, political boiling pot in every one of these countries. And nobody could stop. Nobody could get off the treadmill because if he did, his neighbors would eat him alive. Yeah. You had to have technological advancement in Europe because the politicians in Europe, even though they wanted to, they couldn't stop the clock. They couldn't freeze the game. And in 400 years, it resulted in the Europe that we imagine in the 1800s, we all know of, versus a China that hadn't changed in 400 years. Wow, yeah. If there is no world government, you're going to have the same situation here. You're not going to be able to have the U.S. or the Europeans or the Chinese or the Japanese freeze the clock, because if they do, they're going to be overwhelmed by the progress of their competition. And that's the argument behind why the last thing we need in the world right now is a single world government. I agree with that. You know, what I love about Bitcoin is that you have all of these different countries talking about how they want to deal with Bitcoin, what they want to consider Bitcoin, um, a commodity, real property, a currency, a competing currency. You know, I love the fact that you have so many different opinions about what Bitcoin should be and how Bitcoin should play a part that if Bitcoin, the currency survives, this could be hugely instrumental in kind of keeping these countries guessing what the other one is doing, you know, in other words, laying some groundwork for a basket of countries as opposed to a one world government, which obviously there are some crazy people in the world that want a one world government and total control. But I like the idea that Bitcoin could in some ways be throwing a wrench in that whole one world government scheme that's been going on for some time now. Oh, yeah. Bitcoin is a major innovative change because it is going to withdraw the ability of governments to use money to control their population and control the way the world goes and develops around them. And, and you can see that right now. The same competition that I was talking about in other areas is now going to exist in the area of money. If they attempt to lock down their financial system, which is what traditionally governments in the past hundred years have done mm -hmm. through central banks, they're going to find themselves left behind in the dust. They're not going to be able to compete. They're not going to be able to do that. And the net result is they're going to have to stop all the regulatory BS. They're going to have to back off and they're going to have to let the kind of free open market activity that Bitcoin is going to engender. They're going to have to let it exist simply because they're going to be overrun without it. Some people say 2015 is going to be the year when governments really try to kill Bitcoin. What do you think about that? The problem that governments face is the issue of anti-fragility. I don't know whether you've ever heard that term or not. Sure. Mm -hmm. One of the references in the book talks about it, but basically the argument is that all living systems and money is because it's composed of living individuals. It's the equivalent of a kind of a living system, if you want to think of it that way. They evolve. Mm -hmm. If you put them under stress, they change. Uh, machines don't do that. You know, if you take your car and drive it flat out, pedal to the metal for uh, 48 hours, it doesn't make the car stronger. It wears the car out faster. Right. But if you take a horse and exercise the horse regularly, the horse gets stronger. Yeah. That's 
called anti-fragility. That's a, a characteristic of living systems, and that includes economies. And so what you're talking about here is a problem that the bankers of the world, the central bankers of the world, are very much aware of, which is that, yes, they have a problem with Bitcoin, but it's not all that anonymous. It's not all that difficult to control it, because after all, they do control the exchanges, which are access points with their own currency. The on-ramps and the off-ramps. The on-ramps and the off-ramps. And if they're careful and don't do anything that's really, really too horrible, too restrictive, too destructive, the people who use money, the cryptocurrencies, are going to live with it. They're going to develop a compromise which is uh, usable by all parties, and as a result, nobody is going to change. If, on the other hand, they impose draconian measures that attempt to destroy Bitcoin, that attempt to destroy the anonymity uh, associated with trying to use it, because there is a certain amount of uh, limited anonymity with Bitcoin, mm -hmm. what they're going to find is there's going to be reaction to those very people that developed Bitcoin, and they're going to go to something else that's a whole lot harder to deal with. Mm -hmm. The whole Napster issue is an example of that. If you follow the history of Napster on through to BitTorrent, you see that what the draconian enforcement of copyrights did was it simply created a bigger monster. Yeah. And, and the central bankers are not stupid people. They know that. They can look at that and see. And so one possible solution is that the central bankers will pursue compromise. And in fact, there's very good reasons for them to do that from a, a personal standpoint. For instance, one of the biggest concerns of American central bankers is how do you keep the dollar as the reserve currency of the world? Right. Well, if you think about it, if you came out with a blockchain-based dollar, which was based on the U.S. regular dollar, so that a dollar became interchangeable between a blockchain dollar, cryptocurrency dollar, and a regular dollar, and they could certainly do that. They could set up their own cryptocurrency blockchain in which sure. mining instead of being mining in the high energy intensive method we did it, is simply a matter of them converting paper dollars to electronic dollars, to, to blockchain dollars. Sure. If they did that, all of the advantages, or a high percentage of the advantages that we think of in Bitcoin would suddenly accrue to dollars. And people who are saying, I, I need to use something for reserve currency, what, what can I use? What is the best one to choose? Are gonna be more likely to say, hey, if I choose dollars, I have instant transfer all over the world of dollars for pennies because yeah. of the blockchain function. And they're not counterfeitable. You know, what's a major problem with every currency in the world right now is counterfeiting. That's right. Blockchain dollars are not counterfeitable. All right. Yeah. You've got two really big reasons why you would want to start using dollars. Sure. And that's something the central bankers want to have. They want to have their currency used by more people because, well, that's discussed in the book in some detail. Right. Uh, the issue of the financial advantages to any government for having uh, their money be reserve currency. And so there's very good reasons why central bankers would love to get in bed, so to speak, with cryptocurrencies by creating their own. By creating their own, because if you have your own, then you can do the same thing you can do with the U.S. dollar. You can exactly. control inflation and deflation, whereas if you go with Bitcoin, what's the big problem there? There's exactly. a limited amount, right? Exactly. Going with the digital dollar, the bit dollar, bit U.S., whatever they would call it, and I know people are trying that or thinking about yeah. that, working on little projects. That's great because what? You can just print as many of them as you want, I guess. You can create as many as you want. You can have an unlimited amount or you can have a schedule where every 
every quarter a certain new number of them just magically come into existence so yeah you could basically set up the same system we have right now but in a digital way i'm actually kind of surprised that governments haven't done that the problem is that those people are governed by the same human nature that all of us are governed by mm -hmm. and that human nature says that we want to control the world around us we want to have power, we want to have money, we want to have resources. And so there is always the urge when you have control of something that is socially as powerful as money is, to take unfair advantage of that position. And that's the reason central banks have consistently failed over long periods of time. It's because of human nature. Think about the situation with the dollar right now. Suppose the Fed came out with a blockchain-based dollar, mm -hmm. which had all the advantages, and it was tied to dollars. So it was interchangeable with dollars. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they said, we have gotten religion. We are going to stop all money printing. We are going to stop all inflation. The dollar is going to become as stable as gold is in terms of inflation. Right, and we'll see what the free market actually does for the first time. Right, and we're going to stick to that enough to prove that that's the case. And I'm not sure how they could manage to do that. But let's say they manage to convince everybody that they're really serious and they do that. Mm -hmm. Bam, no more monetary inflation anymore. And all the advantages of a cryptocurrency in terms of speed of transaction, resistance against counterfeiting, you know, general ease of use in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The dollar would be unbeatable. Yeah. I mean, there'd be no reason to have Bitcoin. You know, you have a dollar that could do it. It would be perfect. Sure. And the only reason that's never happened, the only reason central banks have never managed to run a stable economic system is because central bankers are people and people are greedy. Yeah. All right. And that's the advantage of gold or other equity forms of money is that people that run gold mines are competing with each other and constrained by the physical nature of the product they're producing, the equity product they're producing. And the same is true of Bitcoin with proof of work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so on the face of it, central bankers have all the cards. But unfortunately, they're always going to shoot themselves in the foot. And that's exactly what's happening now. Mm -hmm. You know, the argument that you have with people in the United States when you talk about Bitcoin is that most of them don't want to recognize that the king is dying. The dollar's king. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of excellent, excellent reasons why the dollar makes perfect money. And there's no point in going into all of them, but there are a huge number of them. Oh, sure. Unfortunately, resistance to inflation is the Achilles heel. And central bankers, because of their greed, are going to kill the dollar through that Achilles heel. And when they do that, when the king dies, who's coming along next? And that's really a major, major issue because central bankers are going to want to propose their own form of replacement. All right. They're going to propose a new dollar and they're going to play games by saying, well, it's backed by gold. You don't have to worry. It's safe. And they're going to use probably all of the forces of the police state to try and suppress any other forms of currency. And that includes Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And the result is that you could easily wind up with a major political conflict. Yeah, it could. What kind of money we're going to have and who's going to run it and who's going to control society through it, if anybody. It could also happen, though, that decentralized autonomous corporations and the worldwide Bitcoin sphere movement, 
this massive group of tech people gain so much power and are able to give so much power to the people through these decentralized autonomous corporations that we see such a massive paradigm switch over the next two decades that those people, bankers and cartels that were previously in power, just slowly lose their power to the point where they are no longer at the top of the ladder. They're somewhere in the middle. And what is at the top of the ladder is some sort of distributed fairness that is, you know, hinting at the democratic process. And that's something that's possible that, you know, most people don't acknowledge because we've lived for so long under tyranny. I mean, our government right now, I argue with people, is it an oligarchy? Is it a corporatocracy? Are we living under fascism? What is actually going on? And then occasionally I'll meet people who say, well, we're still living in a democracy, which is ridiculous. It would be nice if we were, but I don't know. I'm pretty optimistic about what could happen. I love to think that some Thing that we all have not imagined yet could happen, something really positive, some new paradigm that we all have not really fully imagined or embraced in terms of just goodness and fairness. I guess the first point I'd like to make to your discussion is the statement about living under tyranny. I would argue that the situation that you're talking about, I don't believe, really existed much before 1900. Before 1900, money was not centralized. There was no way that the government could control money. They did not have the types of communications. They did not have the types of data processing. Uh, they did not have the types of surveillance that enabled them to centralize power in any state or form at all. Within living memory, driver's licenses in this country did not have pictures on them. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Now think about that. How in the world are you going to enforce a police state when you can't even take a picture of somebody to prove he is who you think he is when he's standing in front of you with a with an identification document right all right that's an example of the kind of limitations on hierarchies that existed if you think about the country that we had when our founding fathers were around if the government decided they didn't like you well you just pack up and move to another location where nobody knows who you are oh yeah I mean, they couldn't ask you to prove your identity because what could you give to prove? You didn't have anything with a picture on it. What, are you going to put a little miniature that somebody painted to prove that you're really who you say you are? <laughs> right. So the structure of hierarchies was very, very limited simply because the technology for anything else wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so scary is because all of the digital technologies that we see around us that seem on one hand to support the kind of freedoms that we hope for with the internet also support the kind of tyrannies that could result in the most terrifying totalitarian state the world has ever known i think that's true i even think that bitcoin itself could be used to support that tyranny if it's used in the wrong way i think that bitcoin could continue to be used in an underground way and could be used more and more by governments to be able to track what somebody does if there comes a day when there are no physical dollars that i can use to pay the guy that cuts my lawn let's say i always use that example i actually cut my own lawn <laughs> but you know if i can't give him dollars anymore and little jimmy can't go around raking leaves and shoveling snow and 
and mowing lawns and get some dollars if he every time has to get bitcoins then well yeah. by the time the guy is you know 21 he's going to have this massive debt to the irs you know jimmy you owe us twenty thousand dollars i can't believe yeah. it i was just cutting lawns you know you buy something from a street vendor you know somebody's selling produce or somebody's selling something that they make you pay them in dollars and nobody knows about the transaction nobody yeah. has to pay taxes on it everybody's yeah. happy uh, nobody wants that to go away but it could be with bitcoin or with digital currency it could yes. be that we get to the point where there is no more option there is no longer an option for having an anonymous transaction unless you're a super tech guy and you know how to get around that but for your average person it could get to the point where you know this technology does more to enslave people uh, and that people are living 20 years from now in a worse situation more controlled than they are right now you know having their fiat currencies that's what scares me that is a possibility and, you know andreas antonopoulos addresses that he says you know what if that happens at that time like you you mentioned earlier we'll come up with something else we'll create something better that helps free us up again he said but for right now things are so bad i'm paraphrasing for right now things are so bad that even if bitcoin will go bad down the road i'll take it for right now i'll take what it can give us and what it can do to help people all around the world right now today so that's a good argument for the present moment for bitcoin i think well it's also a good argument that the government the central banks i'm sure are making as to why they they don't want to suppress Bitcoin. Right. Because, to take an example right now, we tend to think of Bitcoin as anonymous. But we also know that the NSA is hoovering up a tremendous amount of base internet traffic from everything. So if you combine the blockchain with traceable IP addresses, which mm -hmm. is what the NSA may be able to do in many, many cases. You can easily see a situation in which the anonymity of the blockchain doesn't exist. And we wouldn't even know it. So they could easily wind up on a case-by-case -case basis being able to go into anybody's finances in great detail anytime they wanted. The situation in that case that the government would find itself in is, is very much like uh, the Enigma problem enigma problem during World War II. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you're uh, aware of the situation that Churchill and the Allies faced, but they were able to break the encryption that the Germans used, and to an extent the Japanese used, mm -hmm. in all their communications. Now, what do they do? Do they take advantage of this and act quickly to try and secure victory? Well, if they do, then the Japanese and the Germans are going to find out about it and they're going to change all their codes. And all of the effort that you put into breaking their codes is worthless. Mm -hmm. So they were hamstrung by their own success. They could only use this information in rare cases where it was absolutely essential or where they had an alternate explanation that they could convince the Germans and the Japanese uh, was the real cause. It's a very interesting cat and mouse game to read about the uh, trade-offs that they suffered through with the Enigma and the things that they allowed to go on and allied lives that they allowed to be lost because they couldn't risk letting the enemy know that they had this successful uh, interception process going on. And the situation with the government would be exactly the same. They may have broken the anonymity of Bitcoin and be in a situation where they just don't dare tell anybody. 
Sure. And that could, in fact, be what happened with this recent massive uh, Silk Road 2 takedown. Those could have all been because of Tor or because of Bitcoin and anonymity failures. Right. You know, I have no doubt that there are things that the NSA has done in terms of Bitcoin and other government agencies in terms of being able to track transactions. I don't think it's that hard to do. And then, like you mentioned, track through IP addresses. I also don't think that that's that hard to do. But really what that means then is that if it gets to the point where everybody's using Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin, well, then everybody will be tracked. Their transactions will all be tracked. The only people whose transactions will not be tracked are those people who have learned how to do this and how to use this anonymously. Because from the very beginning of Bitcoin, there have been tech guys who know this cryptography so well, know this technology so well that from the very first time they mined Bitcoin, spent Bitcoin, transferred Bitcoin to this wallet and back to this wallet, every step of the way they have been 100% anonymous. You can look at transactions happening on the blockchain, but for some people there is absolutely no tie to their physical person at all. That's a very rare group. Even moving forward, you're going to have governments tracking what the masses are doing with their digital currency transactions. But the number of people who are able to do that anonymously, completely anonymously, that number will continue to grow. It could take 50 or 100 years. It could get to a point where there's a critical mass of people who are able to use digital currencies anonymously. And that would be through new tech platforms that exist and then also just through education. So that's another way to look at it, I think, optimistically that we're not necessarily all going to be tracked until the end of time if Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin takes off, that the battle is always going to go on again between good and evil. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, I don't think that the conflict between centralized power structures and decentralized power structures is at all clear as to who's going to come out to be the ultimate winner. That scares me. I think the only thing I can see for certain, and, and the book talks about this, is that the conflict is definitely going to grow in strength and, and grow in severity. Oh, yeah. So, Like you said before, I think part of it really comes down to who are the people there at the central banks. Well, it doesn't really matter what their names are. The fact is they're people, and people are motivated by greed and also fear. That's like Wall Street. Yes. What keeps Wall Street running? You know, greed and fear, fear and greed, right? Mm -hmm. Craziness. Man. Hey, I think we've solved the problems of the world today, possibly. <laughs> I feel like we have. <laughs> well, I, uh, I wish I could think that were the case. I hope so. Man, we're going to have to do this again. So can you tell our listeners the best way that they can find and get a hold of, have their hands on their very own physical copy of Thieves Emporium? Certainly, certainly. It's available in uh, electronic form through pretty much all of the distribution channels uh, that you, you, you commonly think of. Uh, Nook, uh, Amazon, uh, it is available for Smashwords and Kobo. Um, you can actually buy it uh, for Bitcoins. Bitbook, B-I-T. B-O-O-K-S dot C-O. I'll give you the complete link for you to, to put in the notes. And uh, Amazon has hard copies as well. And you can order it uh, probably through most of your bookstores, if you wish. The system should be set up right now for you to be able to order a hard copy. It is available in both paperback and, uh, and electronic versions. 
Yeah, you know, I can't say enough about the book. It's something that everybody should read. Anybody who has any interest in tech right now, any interest in uh, what's coming in the future, you know, such as Open Bazaar, the Darknet, any of that, I would say Thieves Emporium is a must read because it takes you into this world where you actually get to feel what it would be like to be a person who is learning how to navigate this dark net anonymously. It's very exciting, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, I am one who, if I am not entertained by a book, I've been known to throw it across the room halfway through the book and, and only pick it up to put it in the trash. And this book, man, I couldn't put it down, you know? <laughs> and, and that's, for me, that's the mark of a good book when I don't want to go to bed because I don't want to miss what's happening next. And then, of course, there's always that point where I come to the last page and I read the last paragraph and I read the last couple pages again and again because I'm in denial that I have to finish the book and that's how I felt at the end of the book I'm like man this can't be over this has to continue so of course I'm hoping and praying that uh, Max Hernandez will at some point write another book well thank you I'm working on it and uh, thinking about what to do next it'll probably be very tech heavy and it will again relate to this conflict between centralized authority versus the growing decentralized uh, political structures in the world. Do you think it'll have Bitcoin in it? Uh, yes, yes. I believe it will definitely be dealing because that's one of the, uh, if not Bitcoin, at least cryptocurrencies, is one of the major changes that has occurred in the political power structure in the past 10 years. Yeah. There's the growth of this kind of technology. So uh, I'm really very interested in trying to explore how that is going to affect the world in the very near future. I am too, man. That's exciting stuff. I always love talking with you. I know the listeners love listening to you. You are a wealth of information, as is any good writer who understands history and understands where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. It's just a joy to speak with you every time, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word, and today the magic word is king, K-I-N-G, king, as in the sentence, the king is dead, but he's not forgotten. Now climb aboard, y'all, this train is bound for glory, and there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be He gave us all a protocol this world had never seen Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name.
parliament While the bankers count our money out for every government Oh, Bitcoin flies on through the skies of virtuality A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh Lord, before I have to go Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh Lord, before I have to go I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, my good friend, author Max Hernandez. If you haven't yet picked up or downloaded a copy of his novel, then you're in for a real treat. Thieves Emporium is a wild ride, an adventure into the badlands, into the dark net, where only the truly tech-savvy can survive. Thieves Emporium can be purchased in ebook format with fiat currency from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or Smashwords. Or buy it with Bitcoin from BitBooks at bitbooks.co forward slash product forward slash thieves hyphen emporium. If you want to pay with gold, you will have to contact the publisher directly at samspade at seabird.us. And of course, Max Hernandez welcomes comments on his novel Thieves Emporium, as well as suggestions for his new book. He can be contacted at maxhernandez at vistomail.com. That's maxhernandez at vistomail, V-I-S-T-O, M-A-I-L dot com. And now an important question for all you small business owners and startups out there. Do you have a business that needs more exposure? Do you want to increase your customer base and increase your profits? Here's something to think about for your business. This podcast you're listening to right now, Bitcoins and Gravy, has over 10,000 weekly listeners and is heard each week in over 30 different countries around the world. The Bitcoin sphere is expanding exponentially, and Bitcoins and Gravy is expanding in pace with this relatively new technology. So as our listener base grows, so does the potential for your business to reach more and more customers here in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and around the globe. To find out how to advertise on Bitcoins and Gravy, just email me at the following address. Howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. That's howdy, H-O-W-D-Y, howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. I can produce for you a high-quality 30-second spot or a one-minute spot for your business right here at the Treehouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. The cost of these ads is very affordable, and because everyone knows I'm a nice guy, I am always willing to work with your budget. Creative advertising strategies and packages are available. Listen, advertising does work. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it, right? 
Do something nice for your business by pushing it forward and taking it to the next level. If you've enjoyed the show today, please take a minute to leave a comment on Let's Talk Bitcoin in the comments section right there below the show notes. You can also leave a message on SoundCloud or do the old-fashioned thing and send me an email. And of course, Bitcoin and Litecoin tips are always appreciated by the hardworking writers and podcasters in the Bitcoin world. Many of us work as volunteers and sure could use those tips. You can send me $5 or $0.05 and I will be just as happy knowing that this podcast put a smile on your face or made your day a little bit better. Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, with my trusty companion, Maxwell, by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other out there now, and remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. <laughs>